I am Pastor Shishko, and I have the privilege of being the pastor of the Haven Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And we're very thankful that you're here tonight for a lot of reasons. Um, and and it's, it's not just you folks. We've had any number of people from across the country who are interested in the service and don't have something else at 6 o'clock. And I assume that you are tuning in with our sophisticated electronic equipment. So welcome to all of you, wherever you are, to what is our first of what we trust will be annual Reformation Remembrance Services. And, and what we're doing is, is very, very biblical, because the writer of Hebrews says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you. And tonight, as we think of Martin Luther and John Calvin, and as we think of John Knox, these are men who spoke the word of God faithfully to their generation in the Protestant Reformation of the, of the 16th century, and it's fitting that we remember them. So that, that's, that's, one, that's really the main reason that we're gathered here tonight. The second is we really want fellowship among people of various denominations that hold to the final authority of the Word of God and salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so while some of us may have differences on issues regarding church government or the sacraments, on the gospel, which, which is the primary thing, we are, we're united. And so we are very thankful to have very different, different churches represented here tonight. That's, that's the second reason, is the fellowship of the saints. And you'll enjoy Haven food and fellowship when we're done downstairs. You will learn to eat. We take eating very, very seriously <laughs> in this church. Okay, that's number two. Number three is we want you to celebrate with us. Um, the Haven was started in uh, 2019 as a home Bible study. Uh, we began meeting in uh, Deer Park at the Lutheran Church, and then when the pandemic came, uh, we had to leave there. And we were, after, after some uh, working with our legislators and the person who was then governor, we finally were granted permission to meet again, and we're very thankful that we were privileged to meet in Bohemia for all was it almost two and a half years. And then God, in his wonderful providence, provided this facility, which was the former Cleft of the Rock Bible Chapel. And that's a, that's a fascinating story, how the Lord provided that. And then one of our, our members is a contractor, and he took this whole project uh, with his crew under his wing and, and uh, transformed this facility. And so the third reason we're thrilled to have you here tonight is want you to celebrate with us with the Lord's provision for this facility for which we're so thankful. Okay. Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Medford. And I don't want you to sound like your second string because we're thrilled that you can speak. We, we had asked um, th their pastor uh, to speak uh, this evening um, but, uh, Pat, but their pastor's grandson died very suddenly a week ago, and so we, were not, we really were not able to have Pastor Rich Jensen with us. Um, he is, in fact, I think he's driving home this week from Texas, so we'll pray for him tonight, but uh, we'll tap him next year. But uh, Elder Uvinio, welcome. Thank you for th that you are willing to be here tonight. Um, interim pastor... And Ron, if this guy's not called as your pastor, you're going to have the pastor of the Haven coming to speak with you all. How do you like that for, uh, for authority? But this is interim pastor Adriano Silva, 
who, while he's ministering in an Orthodox Presbyterian church, is a Bible Presbyterian minister. Well, it's a privilege to have him here this evening speaking. And then Dr. David Innes, who is in back of Pastor Silva. Uh, Dr. Innes is a teacher at uh, Trinity Church, which is an Orthodox Presbyterian church in Syosset. Uh, but if you have the privilege of going to the King's College in Manhattan and you want to major in political science, how many of your classes will they have, Dr. Innes? Uh, two, three, All right. maybe four. All right, there you go. So Dr. Innes teaches political science. There's a good reason. It's an election year. Uh, John Knox was not afraid to, to address the powers that be, and Dr. Innes will be telling us a little bit about uh, the, probably the lesser known of the three reformers, but no less important. One church, history, church historian wrote this about the Reformation. The Reformation of the 16th century is, next to the introduction of Christianity, the greatest event in history. It marks the end of the Middle Ages and the beginning of modern times. Starting from religion or faith, it gave directly or indirectly a mighty impulse to piety. A forward movement was made. Protestantism became the chief propelling force in the age of modern civilization. He quotes Martin Luther, and this is fascinating, Martin Luther five years after Martin Luther hung the 95 Theses on the church door at Wittenberg. Luther wrote in 1522, if you read all the annals of the past, you will find no century like this, writing in 1522, since the birth of Christ such building and planting, such good living and dressing, such enterprise and commerce, such a stir in all the world has not been since Christ came into the world. And how numerous are the sharp and intelligent people who leave nothing hidden and unturned. Even a boy of 20 years knows more nowadays than was formerly known by 20 doctors of divinity. Maybe you know, Luther was at points given to a little bit of overstatement, but that shows you the power of the gospel as it was preached and how it changed the world. We want something of that power and that excitement to grip us all this evening. So you have the program before you. And after opening prayer, and notice that we've picked the, the songs that we're going to sing with the Reformation in mind. Uh, we're going to sing Psalm 46a, uh, which was Martin Luther's favorite, favorite psalm, uh, when the meals would get done, where he had many people that were there. And it was that kind of discouraging at times. Luther would, would say, let's clear the table. They got out their instruments, and they said, let's sing Psalm 46. So we will do that this evening. And based on Psalm 46 is the battle hymn of the Reformation, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Uh, following the presentation on John Calvin, and I've explained to the speakers, 10 minutes, don't give a full course meal, give an appetizer, whet their appetite, so that when we're done, 
you can say, uh, Elder Uvino, what's a good book to read about Martin Luther? And you better be prepared to give them one, okay? <laughs> All right. And then uh, what's interesting is the hymn, I Greet Thee Who My Sure Redeemer Art, was part of the, of the hymn book in Strasbourg which is where John Calvin was pastored by Martin Bootser for some years. And what's interesting is that they sang psalms only then, but this is a hymn. But this, this was a hymn that Calvin himself loved uh, to sing. And then uh, following Dr. Innes' presentation, I said John Knox's psalm. Um, psalm 2B would have been one that, saw, that Knox as a psalm singer would have loved because of its call to the nations to bow the knee to Christ. And then at the very end, what really is a modern Reformation hymn in Christ alone that we'll sing. And then we're not done yet because we want you to enjoy Haven Food and Fellowship at the back. So, we know where we're going. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on our time. Wonderful, majestic, glorious, unchangeable God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for all of your good works in human history supremely and so loving this fallen world that you gave your only begotten Son that those who believe in him might not perish but have everlasting life. But also in history you have brought revival and that supreme revival that we call the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century is in a real sense, humanly speaking, the reason we are here. That zeal for the Word of God, that zeal for the grace of God in Christ, that, that zeal for your church and reforming it according to your Word, that, that is what, what thrills us, our God. And we pray that you would instill that fear in us tonight, we pray that you would revive that fear and that joy in us tonight and thrill us with what you did in history. But Lord, do it to the end that we will pray that you'll do it again. So hear us, we ask, in the glorious name of King Jesus, confirming that we desire to be heard as we say together, Amen. Amen. Well, good evening, everyone. Good evening. It's good to be with you today, and thanks again to Pastor Shishko for having me here tonight. Uh, in my pastor's absence, please keep him in prayer. Yes, Obviously, the, the family's hurting, but uh, we have the hope of the resurrection. We have the hope Amen. of Jesus Christ. So, it was about 500 years ago tomorrow that Luther nailed it. You all know what I mean. You all know what I mean. Luther literally nailed 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. And his goal was not to divide the church but to reform it from within. He saw several things, many things, that the church was doing wrong and wanted to bring it back in line with the scriptures. So he, po he posted 95 points of dispute that he had with Rome, some of them being indulgences, purgatory, simony, which is buying offices, the treasury of merit, and the pope's wealth. The event literally became the shot heard around the world as people's eyes were open to the blatant errors and corruption of Rome and the beautiful truths of the scriptures. Amen. If it were not for Luther's bold stand, his courage, the church would have fallen deeper into sin and idolatry. His boldness would end up being the spark that ignited a movement back to biblical Christianity. Amen. However, we still have a long way to go. So put your Luther on and let's get to work. <laughs> the Reformation was characterized by two major issues. First, being scripture alone, and second, being faith alone. 
The formal cause of the Reformation was Scripture alone, meaning that the authority of the Scripture, being infallible and inerrant, would be the final authority in deciding doctrinal matters. Now, Rome saw that as an attack on her authority, and it was, because it would mean that the church was subservient to the scriptures and not the other way around. In the final court of appeal, only the scriptures were infallible. Only the scriptures were theotnustas, God-breathed, and they contained everything needed to make the man of God complete. The second cause of the Reformation, better known as the material cause of the Reformation, was justification by faith alone. This issue dealt with how a guilty sinner would be made right with God. The question was, is justification a singular act in time, graciously based upon the atoning work of Christ? Or is justification a process based partly on the work of Christ and partly on our own works of righteousness? The answer to this question was, and still is, the crux of the issue. Now, while Luther was a monk, he would later become a priest, but while he was a monk, he was required to confess his sins daily. So he would go into the confessional for 30 minutes, an hour, sometimes two hours, three hours at a time, every day. He was acutely aware of his sin and knew that it was an offense to God. It plagued him to know if he was in right standing with God or if there was some outstanding sin that he committed that separated him from God. However, one day while he was studying the scriptures in the book of Romans, he got to verse 16 and 17 of the first chapter. Romans 1, 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. It was there that Luther finally saw the gospel. The man, that man was not righteous in and of himself. Man cannot achieve perfect righteousness. But in the gospel, you receive a perfect righteousness, the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, all by faith in him alone. And because of that righteousness, you could be declared innocent before God and secure in your salvation. So Luther reasoned, that the righteousness by which he was saved was not his. It was what he called an alien righteousness, a righteousness that properly belongs to someone else, but was given to him by faith. It's a righteousness that is outside of, extra nos in Latin. And it is received by simple faith alone, and not because of any good works we have done, all by the grace of God. It was at that time that he famously said, When I discovered that I was born again of the Holy Spirit, the doors of paradise swung open and I walked through. The doctrine of justification by faith alone was rediscovered by Luther from examining the scriptures and he was eager to share that news. We too can see this precious doctrine so clearly in the scriptures. Paul starts off in Romans 4. What shall we say then? Abraham was gain, uh, that he was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted or credited to him as righteousness. 
Now to the one who works, his wages are not accounted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. David also speaks of the blessing to, to, the, to one to whom the God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed is, a man, blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Beautiful. We see that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness apart from works, apart from anything he did. And his sin would never be counted against him because of Christ. Then, in Romans 10, we see Paul saying, Brothers, speaking to the Israelites, his, his brothers according to the flesh, My heart's desire and prayer for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, the righteousness from God, and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So this is a righteousness that they receive. They're not establishing their own righteousness. Paul goes on to say in Philippians, For Jesus' sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own, that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now, if that wasn't enough, Paul then becomes a little bit more emphatic when he writes to the Galatians. He addresses the Judaizers. He says this, Galatians 2.16, We know that a person is not justified by works of law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. He says the same thing in three, three, three times in one sentence. Unfortunately, this is still the issue with Rome today. Their system of salvation holds that grace is necessary to save you, but not sufficient to save you. You must do works of penance in line with God's grace in order to be saved. This is a deadly and pernicious error. Didn't Paul just say emphatically, to the one who works, his wages are not accounted as a gift, but as his due. He would tell us in Ephesians, eternal life is the free gift of God. You cannot buy a gift. If you offer money for the gift, it's no longer a gift. To think that there is something you can add and need to add to the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ and his payment on the cross is blasphemy. And because their system is based on human effort, you can never be sure your salvation of your salvation and where you stand with God. That was Luther's dilemma all along. And that's, and that's because the verdict for your trial on Roman Catholicism comes at the end of your life. You are on a performance-based system and will be tried based on that. But with the gospel, with the good news, the verdict comes before the trial because of the perfect and finished work of Jesus Christ. Waiting until the end of your life to see if you did enough enough good works is not good news. In fact, it's no different than any other man-centered works righteousness religions. Bottom line, there's only two religions in the world, divine accomplishment or human achievement. Okay? All the cults, every other works righteousness system tells you what you must do to attain heaven. Christianity is the only faith that tells you 
You cannot do anything to attain heaven. Your situation is so dire that I will have to send my son out of heaven down to earth to rescue you. That's how bad a condition you're in. And he's willing to do it. In contrast, the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news, Christ-centered, and all of grace. So much, so much so, that on the cross, when Jesus was crucified, he would say, it is finished. Tetelestai. Paid in full. Hallelujah. This coupled with the fact that the scriptures actually say that these things were written so that you may know that you have eternal life. You can know now. Imagine having to work for your heavenly father's love and never know if it was enough for him or know if you're in right standing with him. Even imperfect human fathers don't do this to their children. How much more, how much more would our gracious and merciful heavenly father not do that to us? You want surety for your salvation? And you think looking at the record of your life and what you're doing is going to comfort you? (laughs) No. That's cause for despair. Look at Jesus on the cross. That's the certified check that your sins are paid for in full. You need the perfect righteousness of and from God alone that's received by faith alone. This is still a gospel issue, and we must stand firm against anyone and anything that would seek to add something to the perfect finished work of God on our behalf. This is why we are still reforming. This is why we celebrate Reformation Day, where the gospel truth of being justified by faith alone, through grace alone, to the glory of God God alone, was rediscovered. If you don't know the Lord or if you're still relying on something you've done or any effort you've put forth to be made right with God, repent. Turn to the cross of Christ where the record of your debt with God was canceled, nailed to the cross, and forgiven forever. Luther may have nailed the Reformation, but Jesus nailed your sin to the cross, canceling all your debt with God. Turn to Christ and be saved. This is the good news of the gospel. And as I close, I need to tell you that Long Island is Christ's island. Our job is to leave it better than we found it. I love Pastor Bill. Every time I talk to him, he ends our conversation, press on. Yes! Oh, press on. I think of Acts 4.13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, ignorant men, they were astonished and recognized that they had been with Jesus. That's my only qualification. I'm an ignorant, ordinary man, but that I have been with Jesus. If Christ is in you, you have been with Jesus. The crowd didn't see Peter and John's degree. They saw their courage. To build the kingdom, you don't need college. You need courage. You don't need a degree. You need a desire. You don't depend on a paper. You depend on a promise that Jesus will be with you even to the end of the age. The Reformation is not over. Semper Reformanda. It's why we're here celebrating today. In God's providence, he has protected his church and brought the Reformation and brought about the Reformation and the men who contributed to it. And like Pastor Shishka always says, press on 
Long Island is Christ's island. Let's leave it better than we found it. We're going to leave the gospel seeds everywhere we go and let that germinate for generation after generation after generation. It was really smart to leave this here. (laughs) I'm glad you went through this with uh, Shisco before me because... Everybody kind of know what to expect now. And uh, thank you for oh, thank you for preaching the gospel so clearly Amen. and Amen. powerfully, Anthony. All right, I think we're most okay. John Calvin, he was, he was not only an important person in the 16th century for the Reformation, Calvin really became this key figure, this key person for centuries to come, even for today. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason was that he produced so much material. But not only that, other reforms produced a lot of material, but John Calvin had this, um, he was so clear on what he wrote. And and so much so that his writings were very important to the composition of our own confessional faith, the Westminster uh, Standards. So there's so much to say about John Calvin, but again, um, I have 10 minutes, and I'll leave that for... Pastor Shisco and, and the books and the conferences that I'm sure you will enjoy. Um, I want to talk briefly today about the person, the man John Calvin, and especially the pastor John Calvin. But you see, sometimes when we say the name John Calvin, what comes to the mind of many of us and many people out there is this image of this harsh very serious, judgmental Presbyterian, which he wasn't in, in, in some ways. And, uh, but that may be because of uh, misunderstandings, right? Of not reading um, the right stuff. Or it may be because of there are some harsh and judgmental Calvinists out there or people that call themselves Calvinists. Or even because, you know, some people simply don't agree with, with the way of Calvin see the Bible. I mean, in his own time, he had no lack of enemies. You know, some people, to despise Calvin at his time, gave his name to their dogs. I know that today that would be an honor, uh, but not at his time. At his time, it was for, to despise him. It is true also that Calvin had to do and, and make some really harsh decisions through his life, but in good part because, you know, he was a man of his historical context. But was he? Was he harsh and judgmental? No, he wasn't. In fact, he was the very opposite. Theodore Beza, Beza was uh, someone that really came to know John Calvin. And he said that about him. 
In the common day-to-day of life, there was no man who was more warm or pleasant. And later he wrote, having been a spectator of his conduct for 16 years, I can now say that in him all men may see a most beautiful example of the Christian character. An example which is easy to slander, but difficult to imitate. What, what an interesting thing to say about someone. That said, still, all right, he wasn't harsh. Okay, I get it. But he was a cold theologian. He was someone that, you know, he, he, he was just this. We have this image of John Calvin as a very stern, cold, distant, only concerned with his books and ideas and his own pen. No, he wasn't. It is true there was he was introvert in many ways. He was a, a of a of a quiet quiet person in in many ways, especially compared to Luther. Uh, but he wasn't he wasn't a code. After his wife died, people to make fun of him said, "You see, you were such a bore." Man, that she died of boredom. That was really mean to say, but they, they said that to him. He wasn't cold at all. He was actually very uh, interested in the people he, that he was pastoring. And he, he became known as a true pastor. He was, concerned, he was not so concerned about his, his book and his writing. I, in fact, he taught his writings were never past his own life towards the end of his life he kind of became to know that his writing would survive him but at some point during his ministry he never thought that that was going to happen um god um, robert godfrey wrote his wonderful little bio about uh john Cobb. so you don't have to ask me afterwards <laughs> you can go find this book called Cal- calvin uh, by Robert Gottfried, and, and he said in his own day he was above all else a pastor uh, who had a passion for the gospel of Christ. So if you imagine Calvin locked in a room studying and writing all day long, think again. In Geneva, he preached every Sunday, and he would preach his his passion was for the gospel, so he would preach every Sunday in the gospels and during the week, many other times, over the Old Testament and the letters, but the gospel was his passion to preach. And you may think, well, I'm sure listening to John Calvin preaching wasn't that easy to follow and understand. Well, think again. He'll never preach more than 30 minutes, which is really hard to do. Uh, he would only preach for 30 minutes and he would never use very difficult uh, words. It sounds difficult to us today because it happened so long ago, but he would try to be very clear and very simple and very to the point because he wanted people to understand the gospel. But maybe besides his focus on preaching, It may surprise you 
that a lot of effort in John's Calvin ministry was actually on counseling. He wrote no less than 1,200 letters. And he wrote letters to people that were sick. He wrote letters to churches. He wrote letters to friends, to kings. He wrote letters to many people, encouraging them and counseling them. He was truly a pastor, a pastor of the people. He visited the sick during the, the, the how they call it, the bubonic plague, the, the Black Death in, in 1542. He needed to be prohibited by his superiors because he wanted to be in every house Amen. with the people sick, Amen. knowing that he could lose his own life. But um, maybe and one of the most moving moments of his pastoral and, and counseling and, and his, just his demeanor towards the people was in 1553 when four young men that were living in Switzerland went to visit friends, lions in France. And they were reformed. They were Christians. And France at the time had a Roman Catholic government. And it was outlaw to be a reform. Someone um, told some government person about these four young people, denounced them to the authorities that they were Protestants. Well, they were sent to prison while in France, and they languished in prison for many years. So in First year that they were there in, in, in 1553, I'm sorry, um, uh, John Calvin started to writing letters to these young men to encourage them and to strengthen them in the faith. And in 1553, just before uh, they, they, went, they, they were sent to die, Calvin wrote to them, Be confident that you shall be strengthened by the Lord according to your need, by the Spirit of our Lord Jesus, so that you shall not faint under the load and under the pressure, however heavy it be, any more than he, the Lord himself, did, who won so glorious victory. So he reminded them of he encouraged them and comforted them through the suffering, but reminded them of what was coming. Yes. There is victory coming. The five prisoners died faithfully in Christ that year because they have learned the Christian truth as taught in the Bible and ministered to them by Calvin. So today... We need pastors and leaders and elders such as Calvin, who faithfully and clearly preach the gospel, not looking to be anything, not looking to be famous or special or having the right writings uh, in future generations, but just concerned with the people of God, concerned with their flock, visiting the sick, and counseling the people, willing to battle plagues, even at their own peril, willing to comfort and to encourage 
the people of God. Pastors who, above all, are imitators, not of Calvin, but of the supreme pastor of our souls, our Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul commanded the young Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word, prepare, prepare in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Amen. Amen. My brothers came up here with electronic devices because they're cool. But like John Knox, I am not. And I use paper. Yeah. The, uh, also, uh, the, when uh, Pastor Shishko asked me to give this address on John Knox and I had prepared it, and then I thought, this could be developed into a column for World Opinions. So, so I got a column out of this at World Opinions at the World Magazine website. And it's not the same as this, but it intersects with this. So go there. Today, today we thank God for the Reformation. Reformation means forming over again or reshaping. The Reformation we celebrate is a Reformation of the Church. The Church had become misshapen by the time of the the opening of the 16th century. The 15th century too, of course. Morally misshapen. Lascivious priests with concubines and deflowering virgins and, and, and worldly popes caught up in politics and conquest and concubines and, and so forth. And sheep allowed to wander in sin. And somebody said if, if all the reformers had done was, was reform the church morally, this would have been an enormous accomplishment. But liturgically misshapen as well. The center of which was the sacrifice of the mass. And theologically misshapen. The gospel itself was all but lost. But it was a, the Reformation was a reshaping, a reforming, not according to new ideas, not according to the latest ideas, not according to a, a, a revisioning or anything like that, but according to the mind and will of God in the Bible. And because of the frailty of our minds and because of humility, we are always reforming, as the brother said, semper reformanda, always reforming. Hence, Reformation Day, not just a remembrance of Reformation past, but a call to Reformation uh, present and future. Even Reformation Month. Everyone gets a month these days. Why not Reformation Reformation Month? Hence this celebration. My place this evening is to speak on John Knox, the leader of the Reformation in Scotland. He was ordained a priest in 1531, but converted around 1546 under the influence of his predecessor in preaching, George Wissert. And amidst the smoke of young Patrick Hamilton's burning at the stake for his own Reformation preaching. John Knox was short in stature, and born and raised in a poor family. So a small, poor man led a small, poor nation 
into a great and world-changing reformation. Yes. And he was clearly a gifted preacher, but the power of his ministry was more than his rhetoric. Rhetoric is important. Eloquence in speaking. The reformers called it divine rhetoric, preaching. But it was more than that. I mentioned three outstanding characteristics that should guide us in our own piety. One, he had extraordinary zeal. Two, and as a consequence, he was remarkably humble. And three, in his zeal and humility, he was fervent in prayer. His zeal, first of all, was in his unbending conviction and courage. Think of the Levites at the foot of Mount Sinai. Uh, Moses said, uh, with, the, with the golden calf and, 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 the, and, the, and, the, and the departing from God as he came down from the mountain, and, he's, and he said, who will stand with me? And all the Levites rallied to him and did what he said to uh, go through the camp and uh, punishing uh, Jesus himself fulfilled the prophecy, zeal for thy house has consumed me. And our Lord was not concerned about his image in being so. So this zealous servant of God in 1546 guarded the preacher George Wissert with a great two-handed sword. And there was, and there was no English uh, via Medea, middle way for John Knox. He was familiar with the middle way. He had, uh, when exiled from Scotland for a while, he, was, he ministered down in Berwick, just south of the Scottish border, and he consulted with Archbishop Cranmer in, in uh, <laughs> London, uh, Canterbury, Canterbury. Um, he knew about the English middle way reformation, but Knox aimed at thorough reformation because he served a holy God. One eulogist at his grave said that he never feared nor flattered flesh. And he faced down both the Lairds and the Roman Catholic Queen without trembling or compromise. And in the pulpit he thundered. He spoke boldly for God. John Knox was the trumpeter of God and he always blew a clear note. David Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote this, Many times did one sermon delivered by Knox change the whole situation when the lords and others were alarmed and frightened and all ready to give in. Knox would go up into the pulpit and preach a sermon and the entire situation was transformed. Mm. The ambassador in Scotland for England's Queen Elizabeth, Thomas Randolph, reported, the voice of one man is able in an hour to put more life into us than 500 trumpets continually blustering in our ears. That's not just rhetoric. That is the blessing of God. But the Lord uses means, and Knox was quite a means. Two, in his zeal he was humble. There is no power in ministry without humility. Humility is not commonly associated with John Knox. <laughs> but it was because of his great zeal that he was humble. Arrogance and zeal for Christ 
are inversely related. The greater the zeal, the humbler the man. Although arrogance can disguise itself as zeal quite easily. You might say, well, who do you think you are to say this? God has said this and you will not bend. Unbending devotion to the truth is not arrogance when God has clearly spoken it. And we're taught the gospel. We're talking about what is clearly spoken. And when the, when the scriptures are allowed to speak for themselves, not filtered through 1,500 years of tradition. From his first call to preach, Knox approached the pulpit ministry the way the Apostle Paul did. Uh, as it says in 1 Corinthians 2.3, in weakness and in fear and with much trembling, so that the people, the, the faith of his people might not rest on men's wisdom but on God's power. And third, his zeal for God and his humility under God are seen in his faithfulness to prayer. Mary, Queen of Scots, said she feared the prayers of John Knox more than all the armies of England. She said that. In the French galley, for a while he was, he was, uh, he was uh, condemned to uh, as a galley slave uh, <laughs> in a galley ship. And Knox, uh, chained to his oar, Knox looked out at his country and prayed, Lord, give me Scotland. Not free me from this. Amen. Free me for this so I can bring Reformation blessing on Scotland. Charles Spurgeon said, When John Knox went upstairs to plead for Scotland in prayer, it was the greatest event in Scottish history. Wow. Yeah. These days, there is a vocal concern among evangelical leaders to be winsome, likable, sweet. Well, that has its place, as opposed to combative, right? has its place. But it's, it's offered as a strategy, a winsomeness as a strategy. As one person put it, minimize the offense so as to maximize openness to the gospel. Well, we all do that in different situations, of course. It's fair, up to a point, but only in suitable circumstances. Knox helps us understand the place of winsomeness in prophetic ministry. Again, Lloyd-Jones, Knox, quote, preached as they all preached, that is, all the prophets, Amos, Jeremiah, John the Baptist. How? With fire and power, alarming sermons, convicting sermons, humbling sermons. Had John Knox prioritized winsomeness as his non-negotiable, as his brand, always smiling, always gentle, always starting with a positive before mentioning a negative, there would have been no reformation in Scotland. Thunder is not winsome. Our elites in America today serve mammon and Moloch, cheered on by many of our neighbors. Many churches, whether evangelical or not, simply do what is right in their own eyes. Evangelical leaders want to be approved so that they will be heard. But to be popular and approved in an age of decline is a condemnation. We need more knocks. We need more zeal. We need more thunder. Lord, 
Send us thunder and zeal. That is my Reformation prayer. Sure it is yours. I don't need to convince you that this is not an age uh, that uh, even smells of things like the Protestant Reformation. Not, not just in our culture, but sad to say, even, even in Christian churches. Uh, these things that you've heard tonight are they're strangely very uncommon in most churches today. But I want to encourage you before we pray tonight. First century, in both Rome and in Israel, it was a bad time. Formalism had crept into Old Testament religion, and it was big-time corruption. You don't believe that? Read the Gospels and read the way Jesus excoriated the religious leaders of his day. And in that as well, you had the craziness and the vehement opposition and hatred of crazed Roman leaders. Our God had a promise. Salvation is of the Jews. And in the midst of all of that, God raised up John the baptizer. He raised up Mary as the one through whom the Lord Jesus Christ was born. And he raised up the apostles. That city that crucified Christ became the city of the mother church of the Christian faith. That is your God. Protestant Reformation, think about what preceded. You've heard a little bit about that tonight. Incredible corruption, as Dr. Innes presented. Incredible corruption of the established church and civil governments that were not real pleasant as well. Out of the womb of an apostate church, God raised up the Protestant reformers, and he made them bold in their own day. And they were convinced of what the Apostle John said, you let the light shine in the darkness, and the darkness will not overcome it. And it didn't. That's the reason why we had what we had in the Western world, is the influence of the Reformation. Yes, this is an age of incredible hostility to the Christian church. Sadly, even within the professed Christian church, broadly considered, there is incredible hostility to Christ. But God has a way of making the wrath of man to praise him. And what you just sang from Psalm 2 is true. The Father says of his Son, the Lord Jesus, who was raised from the dead, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. And as the nations rage and imagine a vain thing, praise the Lord that what was just a few people in the first century, remember that none were really faithful to Christ when he was crucified or very few. Now the Christian faith in one form or another affects about one-third of this world's population. And the Lord is going to continue to get his victories. Yes, Long Island is Christ's. Because I don't think Long Island is excluded when Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. 
And brothers and sisters, if you go out here tonight more dominated by what you hear in the media than by what the Word of God says is illustrated by the Reformers, then we really failed tonight. But I trust that the spirit of Luther, the spirit of Calvin, the spirit of Knox, above all, the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ will be yours, and you will go out into this world with every confidence that the Lord will get the victory and that he will be, we will be more than conquerors through him who loved us. So we're going to pray. If you want the Reformation revival, the Lord must send it. Let's stand together and let's pray. Our Lord, it was the psalmist who said, Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? And that is what the Protestant Reformation brought in its best expression, a revival of that faith that, trend, that turned the world upside down in the first century and began to turn the world upside down in the 16th century, and not a little of it was of your people who rejoiced in you. Revive your work in the midst of the years, in the midst of the years, make it known. And Lord, in your wrath, remember mercy. Yes, we are in a culture that is under your own wrath, given up to our own sin. But God, in your wrath, remember mercy toward our nation and toward its churches. Turn us again, O Lord of hosts. Cause your face to shine upon us, and we shall be saved. But God, that's not going to happen if you do not cause your face to shine us by the Holy Spirit, showing us the Lord Jesus Christ through the word preached. And cause, we pray, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, we're told to ask for the Holy Spirit, and we do. Cause the Spirit to be poured out upon us from on high. And you tell us that the wilderness will be made a fruitful field, and the fruitful field will be counted as a lush forest. Our God, we confess that we are in the midst of wilderness in both church and state. By the Spirit, make this wilderness a fruitful field, we pray, and cause that fruitful field, as you make it to be fruitful by the Holy Spirit, to become a great forest with oaks of righteousness. God, do that, we pray, by raising up in us again afresh a love for the gospel, that we are declared righteous by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We pray for those, especially those who are called to serve as shepherds of the flock. Make us to be, according to your own promise, shepherds after Christ's own heart. You promised that you would raise up men with the heart of God for people. We need that. We pray that you grant it. And our Lord, for that thunder, that boldness, coupled that zeal, coupled with that humility, and wed to prayer, make us all that type of people, bold to speak the truth, 
gracious and gentle and kind in our dealings with all, but never, never letting that stifle our zeal for what the Word of God says, for the glory of Christ and for the purity of the gospel. And dear God of heaven, make us to be a people of prayer. We have not because we ask not. Ask and it will be given to you. We ask of you, our God, that you would favor our area, our region, our nation, and favor the nations once again by bringing that revival and that reformation in which life supplants death, light supplants darkness, truth replaces error, and the glory of God displaces the worship of man. God, do that work, we pray, that we might be in awe that Jesus really is alive and at work, and that we might see multitudes of men and women and boys and girls turn to Christ as prophet, priest, and king. Do as we love to pray. Do, don't do what we ask. Do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond anything we could ask or even think for your glory and our everlasting good. And to confirm that we desire to be heard, we say together, Amen. Amen.